Now, not so very long ago, we had a prayer and fast on the topic of faith without work. So I thought I'd bring you some of the thoughts from that because it's a compilation of thoughts that came from the various speakers over the weekend. Uh, And then I'll jump into probably four scriptures. So first of all, I'll just start by giving you some of the summary points that came out from the different thoughts that various brothers brought. And so clearly a lot of the the thoughts come from the book of James. And uh, the first thing that came out was faith without works is dead. Not sick, dead, barren, fruitless. And uh, as we read in the book of James that works, in other words, faith requires action. You know, faith has to manifest itself. Uh, So faith is more than just believing. Uh, It's more than just an emotional connection. It's more than just an intellectual acknowledgement. However, it's not just action, because some people get strong on action but no faith. It actually requires change. Faith has power. So we ask expecting. There was a great point came out there. We are not beggars. We ask as sons and daughters of the living God. You're better off arguing with God. This is a private opinion, so you don't have to. You can sort this out with Pastor Chris later. You would be better off arguing and yelling at the Lord than begging. Now, I I will cite the prophet Job, who really took his complaint to the Lord. And the thing that the Lord loved about it is that Job uh, approached him so directly. So even though he was sort of wrestling with God a bit, and, and, and Jacob, he wrestled with the Lord too. So you won't get reprimanded for being very bold with the Lord and, and forthright. Faith is also faithfulness. Even when, as one of the brothers said, your eyes can't see what it is you hope for, what it is you pray for. In fact, it's particularly when your eyes can't see. Because we read in Romans, why does a man hope for something that he's already got? Faith does not allow, excuse the Aussie expression, two bob each way. Now, I don't know if everybody understands it's an Aussie saying. It means having an each way bet. It means this is what I'm believing in, but just in case this doesn't work out, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sort my own arrangements out over here. That's having two bob each way. It's, it's a two-way bet. Um, the, the only currency in God's kingdom is faith and the word of God. Now, sometimes the scriptures that do us the most good are the ones that aren't quite so pleasant. We all find scriptures that are very pleasing to us and we favour those scriptures because possibly they're scriptures about our behaviour, our life, our attitude that we already conform to. So we feel good about those scriptures. But every now and again, uh, a scripture comes along and we think it's a bit challenging. Maybe I'm not quite conforming. Well, they're the ones by which we learn the most. Uh, works are not the passage to the kingdom of heaven. They are simply an outworking of a heart filled with faith. Works are not a path to salvation. They're just what happens. 
In fact, if you read the book of James carefully and you look at the works that James talks about, they do include the traditional good works, such as um, helping the widows and the, the orphans, but they include a darn sight more than that. And most of the rest of what they include are attitudinal, what I'm going to call the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit are really like these... Uh, there's a lot of emphasis these days on feelings. People are just dominated by their feelings. But what actually happens is uh, feelings become so important for people and, and they're ruled by their feelings. They're ruled by anger. They're ruled by lust. They're ruled by indignation. They're ruled by outrage. And it's really prevalent in the social media world. And I've never been there yet. But your life is dominated by likes or dislikes. Apparently, you know, it can make or break your day because of your feelings. Well, I'd suggest that these sort of feelings that dominate your life, they're actually the fruits of the flesh. They're the things that bind you captive. Whereas the fruits of the Spirit is where we don't allow our feelings to dominate us, but we allow the heavenly compassion and the love and the joy and the peace of God to rule in our hearts. And so it's a different set of feelings. They're really heavenly. Another point that came out was you can't make God do things. You can't bargain with God. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> However, what he said he'll do, he'll do it. Believe it. We read in the book of Psalms, I put my word above my name. That is to say, I put my word above my reputation. If I said I'll do it, I'll do it. And that's why we share testimonies, because what he's done for others, he'll do for you. There's no respect to persons with the Lord. And through faithfulness and faith, we can cultivate positive cycles of life. And then one of the brothers gave us a wonderful example of works, simple works. The enthusiasm of a new saint. And he reckons that's worse. And I'm going, Amen. Sometimes new people, because we've got a few of them down there at the moment, they think they're the recipients of all the energy in the room. But what we're trying to say to them is, no, you're exuding all the energy in the room because you're new, you're enthusiastic, you're in love with what you've got. That's the works of the Spirit. So let's get to some scriptures. James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, this is a very interesting little passage of Scripture. It's talking to us about what you could call the evil inclination in the human heart. You see, it says there in verse 23, if a man is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, not his spiritual face. His natural face. So he gets a bit of a look at himself. And he goes away and he forgets what manner of man he is. Now the spiritual man 
It's in verse 25. He looks into the perfect law of liberty. Now, we read in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 and Genesis chapter 8 verse 21 that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so, our natural man, our human nature, has an inclination to evil. And we ought not to forget that. Now that is not to say that we should get ourselves beating up under condemnation over that, but we should be realists with that and we should take steps every day of our life to address that by looking into the other mirror, the perfect law of liberty, which is the law of the word of God, which says that I am washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Because when I look into uh, the natural mirror and then I go away and forget, I forget that if I don't address my natural inclinations by the power of the Spirit, then I fall victim to the lie. You see, Satan's influence is exercised through the earth and through history by one thing and one thing only, which is to say, the lie. Satan doesn't have power. I don't personally believe Satan has any power over anyone. Now, that's a private view and you may choose to... You're free to shoot me down over that. But I know there's a lot of hocus-pocus these days about Satan's influence. So let's go back to what the book says. The book says that he's the father of lies, he's the originator of lies. That's his single power that's identified in this book. And so if he gets us believing a lie, you bet he's got power. But we have given him that power. We have surrendered ourselves to the lie. Now, a Christian can surrender themselves to the lie in all manner of ways. Um, but the fundamental thing is Satan gets us to respond to our natural instinct, our evil inclination, our lesser self, you know. And let's get down to the tin tacks. Anger that we don't deal with. I'm not talking about flashes of anger. Condemnation. Doubting your salvation. Doubting that you're washed and the cleansing blood of Jesus, which is made effective by the Holy Ghost and the washing of the Holy Ghost and the regeneration of the Holy Ghost. Doubting that that's sufficient, that somehow you're still not secure. That's a lie. Let's go to James chapter 3, verse 9. Therewith, ah, let's just bring this, this natural inclination of the human heart down to earth. Chapter 3, verse 9. Therewith, bless we God, talking about the tongue, even the Father, which we therefore, uh, therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Well, there's a very good example. Blessing God when we're in the company of the saints and at a meeting on a Sunday or a Wednesday night or any other time but then privately cursing men. Well, that's that's not the law of liberty. Chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Sometimes married couples in the Lord get into trouble because they allow bitterness and resentment to penetrate their heart and get in between each other rather than realising that 
whilst we have this evil inoculation, which quite frankly would be a towering monstrosity that we could never overcome except for two things, repentance and forgiveness. But because of those two things, it's all swept aside. It's like the dust of the earth. It's just gone. It's blown away in the wind. Because repentance is never rejected by God. And repentance, remember, faith without works, repentance brings change. Chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings amongst you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Quarrelling, in other words. Quarrelling. When people are continually quarrelling, it's, it's a sign that, you know, the man who looked in the mirror, beheld his natural face, instead of taking stock and realising, nah, I'm going to the, I'm going to the mirror of liberty. I'm going to drink from the living water. I'm drinking from the fountain this day. Because he forgets that he needs to drink from the fountain, he doesn't, and because he doesn't, his natural instincts get the better of him. How do you get out of that cycle? Repentance and forgiveness. And so the forgiveness is a two-way street. I know that God forgives me, and because I know that God forgives me, I develop a forgiving nature. And that's, I believe, what the parable, the question put to Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brethren? And Jesus said 70 times 7, and I don't think he was saying 490 times. I would think he was saying, because of the connotation of the number 7, develop a forgiving nature. Now, apart from anything else, you'll be a darn sight happier. Forgiveness sets you free. I want to digress and make a comment on something that is becoming a scourge in our society. And we're going to hear a lot more of it. And I'm just going to make a mention of it because it's relevant to the Christian walk. And that is identity politics. And the buzzwords with identity politics are diversity and inclusion. Well, right there, that's the lie. It's not diversity, it's exclusivity. It's not diversity and inclusion, it's exclusion of anybody who doesn't agree with us. Now, another thing that drives this whole thing, and this is very interesting, at its roots, it's an ideology, it's a belief system that my identity has to be separate from yours and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. And And that's why when it all started, there was five letters and then six and then seven and then some European government. Some European government has formally recognised last year 37 and now there are people in America saying there's 800 and that was months ago. It's probably 8,000 by now. The point is that it is a never-ending process of people standing aside from everybody else. Because I want to be unique and I want to be different and I don't want to be part of the community. I don't want to expect responsibility for my place uh, in the community and I'm going to stand in opposition to society and I'm going to differentiate myself by resentment and hostility. Now we think this is a new story. It's actually a very old story because when Jesus came to the earth, 
and presented himself as the son of man who was able to forgive sins and offered a path, the way. Do you know the Christians in the early days, they were referred to the people of the way. Have a look in Acts chapter 9 when they, you know, just after Saul's, uh, uh, when he was whatever he did, you know, chapter 9. The way. They were the people of the way, a new way of living, a new way of being. But you see, when Jesus came, and then they brought him before um, the high priest, and they brought him before Herod, then they brought him before, before Pilate, it was easier, it was easier to say, away with him, we want nothing to do with him. It was easier to exercise resentment and hatred than to carry the burden of the cross, to accept responsibility. Pilate was confronted with the question, what is truth? And it was standing right in front of him. Today, that's the question. There is no truth, we're told. What is truth? It's an old question. So don't think that any of this is particularly new. It's been around for a very long time. And so they cried, away with him. Because it is easier to cry away with him, away with Jesus, away with Christian values, away with the Spirit of God and the heavenly graces that called the fruit of the Spirit, Get that out of here. Get that out of our life. It's easier to live by the power and strength of resentment and hatred than it is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. Because when you look into his face, he will break you down. And he will bring you to a place of repentance and sorrow, godly sorrow. And he will bring you to a place where you allow yourself to be broken and he will lift you up. So people won't look, people won't listen, they won't look into the true character of Jesus Christ. So folks, all of this modern stuff, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's easier for people to say, burn it all down, burn our society down, burn our civilization down, than it is to fix Renew, rebuild, restore. But the Bible way is not to separate people out. The Bible way is to bring people together into a new creation. The Bible way is to bring unity. The Bible way is to build community, to build fellowship, to build it on the basis of faith in Christ. And so we see that everything that's happening today is antagonistic to the old wisdom of Scripture. Now, given that there's only two ways, everybody has a choice to make. We've made ours. Don't be deceived and don't be easily shaken in your mind that somehow the forces of heaven are going to be defeated. That, that's an absurdity. The forces of heaven cannot be defeated. And every time we exercise faith with works in our community, with our workmates, with our own families, with our loved ones. Every time we do that, we bring a little bit of heaven to earth. Heaven will not retreat, but the forces of darkness will. I know Isaiah says, How gross darkness covers the earth. But he goes on to say, The glory of the Lord shall fill the earth. So he tells us the end game. 
I know that for some that have been around a few decades, there was this great revival in the 70s and the 80s. We ought not to think that was the first revival and we ought not to think that's the last revival. We've got to be ready for the next revival in this country. I know that the revival has really moved abroad into the developing world. Do not think that it won't come back here. Because it wasn't as if we did anything to create that revival. We did nothing. We just were there ready to be used of the Lord when it came and it's coming again. We've had 30 years in this country where people have not had any need to respond to the old adage, Jesus saves, because frankly, what does he save you from? Good house, nice wife, good dog, nice car. Why do I need saving? But that's changing fast. That is changing fast. And there's a good side to the fact that it's changing fast. We don't rejoice in difficulty, economic or political or social or any difficulty. These people that we're, we're mixing with, they're our kinsmen. Have a read what Paul said about his kinsmen. His heart burned for them. He said, I'd swap places with them if I thought it would save them. These people we call Australians, they are our kinsmen. I mean, our kinsmen are anybody, anywhere in the world. But we have a particular task to do here in towns or there on the Sunshine Coast amongst our own. And we don't know, but a lot of them are a lot more hungry than what they realise. James chapter 2. I forgot what Thomas said to Pastor Chris, so I'll watch it now. From here on in, I'm watching it. Oh, yeah, this is a wonderful little verse. Chapter 21, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And then down in verse 25 he goes, Likewise also was not Rahab, the harlot justified by works, the prostitute, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. And so this is a wonderful little passage that puts Abraham and Rahab together. So let's just summarise the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, he was called to get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Now for a big move, He's not given much detail. And the Lord's just saying, well, you better trust me on this one, Abraham. And Abraham trusts him. He says, take your son up to Mount Moriah. He's not given much detail. The Lord just says, you better trust me on this one. Sometimes we're not given a lot of detail of the plan that God's got for our life. And he says, but trust me. Now, sometimes you might be privy to a little bit more detail, but that's not always a good thing. Can you remember a time when Abraham was given a bit of detail? When the angels came and they said to him, we're going to destroy Sodom. What did Abraham do? He started bargaining. Ah, oh, would you destroy it if there was 50? No, of course not. Hmm, 50 is probably a few too many. How about 45? Not good. Hmm, that was a bit quick. How about 40, 30, 20, 10? He started negotiating. See, this is the whole point of trust. 
We walk by faith and not by sight. That means that we walk by trust, we have a prayer, we have desires, we have needs, and God says, trust me, I know what's best for you and I will look after you and I will care for you. And he's not necessarily going to give us the detail of what's in his plan because the minute he does, I can only speak for myself, I begin to negotiate the plan. Well, we can do it a different way, Lord. I mean, how many times have you... Probably it's only me. I pray and then I say, now while we're praying, I've got it all worked out. (laughs) Well, you know, it's fun trying but it doesn't work because our our life is trust. That's the beauty of trust. And and, And the other thing about here, Abraham gets this direct revelation from God. Rahab doesn't. Abraham has a claim of sorts to righteousness. Rahab doesn't. She's not an Israelite. She's a prostitute. Her lifestyle has nothing to commend itself. It's wicked. Rahab gets no direct revelation. Rahab gets second, perhaps third-hand reports about what God did for Israel as they brought them out of Egypt. And she believed it and she thought, if that's what's God doing, I want in. That's what makes Rahab so outstanding. She never heard it. Now, Jesus said to his apostles and his disciples when Timothy had the doubt that time, you've seen me, you've touched me, you believe me, but blessed are they who will never see me but believe. Folks, that's you. And that's the people that we're going to talk to in the months ahead. So she was believed. Sorry, she believed and she was converted. I better find one last scripture, James 3 verse 17. Of course, it's a wonderful scripture. Talking now about the wisdom that comes from above. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And so we see... Unlike the modern ideologies, we're called to be unifiers, not divisionaries. We're called to bring people into this new creation and a direct relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're called to be part of this movement through time and space called the Pentecostal movement, which is the fire of the Holy Ghost that still burns brightly in the earth. And it's not a church, it's a movement. And it's gathering souls for the kingdom of heaven. It's gathering souls for the harvest. And we get to choose whether we will respond to the fruits of the spirit or the fruits of the flesh, whether we will reject the evil inclination that once dominated me by exercising the gift of God's spirit or whether I will neglect the gift of God's spirit and certainly succumb to my evil inclinations. And then I will be chastised. And then I get the choice. Well, come to sunshine, repentance, forgiveness, grace. And so there's a congruence. Congruence is where two things line up. There's a congruence between what we say and who we are. It's the only hope we've got of leading people to Christ. Jesus said, they'll know you by your fruit. We have to be able to give an answer for the people that ask us of the hope that is within us 
But if they can ask us the hope that is within us, but if they don't see congruence, if they don't see that who we are lines up with what we're saying, we've got no chance. We're the lights of the world. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. To you. And so, let's just go back then to our foundation. Our foundation is repentance, water baptism, and the regeneration of the Holy Ghost with the Bible, this wonderful prayer language. Now, I haven't talked about that tonight and don't need to because I know you're all spirit-filled, but I want it. I want it. Because Isaiah 28 is the verse that reminds us this is the rest, this is the refreshing. And so I was talking to a young man the other day who said, I don't like routine. I feel if I have a routine, it's, it's fake. To which I replied, son, brother, you need a routine with your prayer life. You need to make it regular. You've got to plug it in because every time you exercise this gift, you're drinking from the living water. Jesus said, out of their bellies shall flow rivers of living water. He never intended us to be a billabong or a dam or a pond. He wanted us to be part of a river. And every time we drink from the river, every time we pray in the Spirit, we're drawing the water from the wells of salvation and it will flow from us to other people. And so our foundation is right. Our assurance is right. We're assured of God's love. We're not going to fall for the myriad lies of the adversary because remembering that's really all he's got is lies. And they've all been exposed. They're fraudulent. We know that we need forgiveness, but we know we've been forgiven. And because of that, we're not easily threatened. That's why in Corinthians 13 it talks about the gift of God's love. It's not touchy. It's not easily threatened. It's not overly sensitive to offence. It's robust. That's why Christians are typically happier people. We're positive. Scripture goes on to say in John, the perfect love casts out all fear. And this has applications in our daily life. If we're studying and we're at uni and we're positive, we're going to influence the people around us. How many people around you at uni, how many people around you at work are scourged with depression? And we have, we have something that shines straight through depression. And some saints have had to battle with it themselves. That's okay. That's the law of liberty and the natural mirror. We have, we have the choice. P- parents. Parents who are positive are going to raise positive children. Children will not stay around as they grow into their teenage years if they're raised with fears and resentment. A church that puts an emphasis on sin and wrong will not hold its members. Who would hang around? I mean, I, I grew up in a... Well, I didn't really grow up in a church like that because I didn't go to church much. As soon as I was old enough to go surfing, I told Mum I'm going to the to the night to the night mass, Mum, and she knew for all I was lying from my back teeth. I never went at all. But anyway, why would you go? 
You know, when the old bloke's thundering from the pulpit, if you don't confess all of your sins, then they're twice as big. And I remember thinking, the mathematics on that's pretty easy. They're twice as big already. If I go back and don't confess again, they'll be twice as big than twice as big. It's exponential. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going near the confessional anymore. Whereas with Jesus, it's just like, I blew it. I know it, you know it, let's make a clean break. And let's make a clean start. And maybe sometimes we go and get help. Humility, Galatians chapter 1, when we see people struggling with their walk, consider such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. We can preach till the cows come home, but if we're not living what we say, we won't inspire trust in other people. Our message simply falls on deaf ears. So humility with trust and faith in God's word. And faith is what his word is within us. And that brings us to really what's going to keep us ready for the next wave of revival. Positive saints happy in our walk in the Lord. Courage to make right decisions. I just want to touch on that. I'm one minute over time. I just want to, I just want to say that I think, I think when we receive the Holy Spirit and we learn from the scriptures, we learn values, right? We learn values. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. But then there's something called ethics. Now I don't want to get too intellectual here, but it's, it's a distinction, if you can stay with me. Values is, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. Rightio, that's good. I know what's right and know what's wrong. Ethics is, now I'm confronted with a decision. Maybe fudge my tax return. Maybe someone, you know, gave me a bit much money over the counter and I think, ooh, I'm ten bucks up. Maybe I could tell a little lie and, 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 and gain some short-term benefit. Ethics says, no, my values are, I value the truth, I value honesty, I value openness. So ethics says, well, I'm not going to bend my values for momentary convenience. I'm going to stand my ground. So there's a difference between having the values and putting them into play. And that's what it means when it says faith without works is dead. And so when people see us with both values and ethics, they see us with people who have congruence, people whose lives and what we say line up beautifully, people who have integrity. And integrity doesn't mean that we have no faults. It means we have no pretense. You know that little song? Do you sing that song, Jesus take me as I am? I can come no other way. And in Genesis it says, God said to Abraham, Walk thou before me and be thou perfect. Did he mean perfect? Any takers? Did, did he mean perfect? No. no. He meant complete. Just like we sing, Jesus take me as I am, I can come no other way. So the courage to live by what the Lord has given us, to let the Spirit allow us to control those feelings that would otherwise bring us back into captivity. Amen?